Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Waiting for Review. Talking to you from New Zealand, I'm David Gary Wood, an iOS developer and indie app enthusiast. In this season of the podcast, I will be joined by guests from the indie developer community. I'll be finding out all about their apps and what makes them tick as developers. The show now has a fortnightly format and it should land in your favourite podcast app just before the weekend. In today's episode, I'm joined by Daniel Yilk, maker of Telemetry, lightweight analytics that's not evil. I hope you'll enjoy the show just as much as I've enjoyed making it. Hi, Daniel. Hi, nice to meet you. So let's let's kick this all off. Who are you and what do you do? Right. Um, hi, I'm Daniel. Um, I am a longtime iOS developer and also a longtime Python developer um, who has worked as indie and freelance developer for the last few years. Um, I think what I mostly tell people uh, from the iOS bubble is that I actually, like my first app was actually among the first few hundred apps in the app store. Like I was there on day one. Wow. And um, since then I, I I picked up a few tricks, like, I guess. And I mostly worked both in iOS on the front end and I did a lot of work in Python for backends. Cool. Um, that's about like 50-50 or so. Um, and that's really cool because then this way I can offer people who hire me their ability to work on both the front end and the back end at the same time. Yeah. Um, my last big project or workplace was um, Elgato. They're like, um, they're like a hardware company that make various um, really cool hardware for streamers. Uh, like they have this thing called a Stream Deck, which is this tiny, tiny keyboard with programmable, programmable keys. And I worked on large backend services for them. Fantastic. Was that all in Python? Uh, that was all in Python, correct. Like they have like these huge backend web, web services that they um, are going to announce soon. And uh, I, for the last year or so, I helped them like build build them basically. Like the architecture, like how, what... How would we organize everything so that it's like high performance and stuff like that? Um, so yeah, and for the last year or so, my my most current released iOS app has been uh, Libby or Libby, um, which is a, a bit unusual. <laughs> it is an you know how there's all these all these apps for tracking your calories or your sleep or your exercise and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Well, Libby is an app for tracking your mood, energy, and also your cycle and your sexual activity. Okay. It's, it's not sleazy, I promise. <laughs> um, it comes from a, from a few conversations with friends about um, people's uh, libidinous cycle, basically. And we found out that there's no real scientific data about most of that stuff. And we were like, okay, someone should make an app where just every day on at various times it would ask you like how are you doing in various dimensions and then just track that locally and that's basically what i did it um it's a small friendly app that will just like ask you once or twice a day like how are you doing and you can like enter your your energy level but also your libido and 
if you had sexual activity or if you are menstruating, if you are in fact menstruating, stuff like that. And it will give you these um, these insights because it will analyze like correlations between the various um, data and it will um, tell like these are trends that you're experiencing. And um, it doesn't have a huge followership, which is fine. But the people who use it are super happy with it. So that makes me really happy. And it's been actually during the pandemic, it's, been, it's actually been super, super helpful to see like, oh, yeah, this is the last two, two months or so have been really good months for, for me mood wise, for example. Yeah. Or better than the preceding months. So, yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. Other than that, I am very much into space. I love cats. And uh, I love wakeboarding and biking and racing cars, I guess. But I haven't done that for a year or so. Going back to the early App Store days, what was the right. app that you had in the App Store all the way back then? Ooh, I love to tell you about this. Um, so I was a student back then. I, was, I stu- studied uh, computer science uh, with a um, minor in philosophy, actually. And um, I sometimes couldn't concentrate very well on on various tasks that I needed to do, like learning and stuff like that. So I read about this um, 10 plus 2 method that, uh, on a blog post by Merlin Mann. And Merlin said that you should just concentrate or set a timer for 10 minutes and then just work for really hard for 10 minutes and then you get a two-minute break. Like when the timer goes off, just set, it, set the timer to two minutes yeah. and just relax for a minute or two and then do this do the whole thing again and this will help you concentrate and i found that this really helped me so i did exactly that i created an app that's called 10 plus 2 and it would display a a countdown timer and where from 10 minutes downwards and when it reached zero it would do a it would like play a pleasant little plipping sound uh switch <laughs> into switch into like two minute recovery mode and then just start the whole thing again and i think the the main business logic was like was done in a day or so and then i spent like two or three weeks just refining the user interface like showing paper prototypes to everyone um and you know back then everything everything was like kind of bubbly and bumpy and uh, skeuomorphic yeah and so i had i i tried to make it like very much like a like a high-end uh high-end digital watch or something yeah um or like a bedside clock or something like that and then i also had these yellow and black stripes for work mode because work somehow is yellow and black and stripes if you're a builder i guess i don't know (laughs) um so yeah it was very much very fun and back then you could really sell ios apps like this thing um was in tier one so that meant like 99 cents here where i am yeah and it sold like hotcakes um, the thing paid for my rent for at least a year. That's amazing. Yeah, and so that was a very like good start. But because back then, like people, um, people were just getting the iPhone 3GS, I think. Yeah. And especially around, around Christmas or so, like people would just get their new phone and then go on the App Store and look for apps that they could use. And there were so few apps at the very beginning that people were like, "Oh yeah, let's like, just like." Um, they would just go through the lists and actually try out the first five of each uh, of, of each category or so. 
Yeah. And that really helped, even if it was a paid app. Like today, it looks very much different. But yeah, that was very much fun. That's really, really awesome. So, so you've been in the App Store um, ever since those days? Um, off and on, I guess. Um, I haven't had too many apps of my own, but I have been working on iOS projects ever since. Because, cool. uh, yeah, I, I did some stints where I was actually employed in, the, uh, in, in between. Then I went back to being a freelancer. And um, it, both in employed uh, mode and in freelancer mode, I, I wrote a lot of iOS apps, but most of them weren't my own. Let me think. I did um, one app that I wrote on my own is a, is a timing app for a marathon that was happening here in the city, uh, city of Augsburg, Germany, representing, by the way. Awesome. Um, so you could, if you had your phone with you during the, the local marathon, it would um, show you your, your current time. And I think before the marathon, it would like show a, a countdown clock until until the start. Because it was one of those races that like everyone would start at the same time and then it would I think calculate some 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 delta when you actually cross the start line. Yeah. Um what else did I do? Uh let me let me look into iTunes Connect. <laughs> <laughs> While this is loading, I can tell you like I'm I'm actually writing a a new project that is a bit different because it's not just an app. It is um, an app plus a server because I'm uh, trying to create a new kind of analytics uh, software. So it's a server that's actually not written in Python this time. It is written in Swift itself using the Vapor framework. And um, my goal with this is to, you know, like how everyone or like lots of iPhone developers have like their own analytics, like they just because they don't want to use Google analytics or firebase yep. or stuff like that and um i was kind of like i i i recreated this basic thing for three or four times and then i was kind of like okay i i need to do something different uh i i need to like just take the code that i already have and clean it up a little bit and just make it as make it into an, its own project that would um they, they, they can just help other people. So I'm actually in the process of doing that. Um, What's that project it, called? It's called Telemetry. Uh, you can actually look at a preview on apptelemetry.io. Um, it's the server is almost finished, I'd say. So and uh, you know, it's like this tiny Swift UI package, or actually Swift package, that you just include in your app, and then you can send a what I call a telemetry signal every time something interesting happens and just attach some some metadata to that and then in as the developer you can just like create these what i call insights where you just um aggregate the signals and then extract like some meaningful data out of that and the cool thing about the whole project is that it's like super super private because i you i worked in various um in various very privacy focused companies and I think that's a, a huge important part of our ecosystem and that like most computing should be very private by default. And yeah. so everything the thing does is like hashed and written in a way that it's impossible for even the, both the developer and also me as the 
person hosting the platform to get any actual information about individual people. It's all about the aggregates, right? That's brilliant. Uh, I've been right. looking for a product like that myself uh, mm-hmm. for the last year. Um, you sort of mentioned people roll their own, and that's how you started. I think I got right. as far as sort of exploring, well, what would it take to kind of, you know, hit some sort of webhook or something on my own back end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of just gone down in, in priorities sort of since then. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, do, I lose a lot of analytics in my own apps because I, I decided to just take those things out because I didn't want all of my data going to Google. So really, really interested in telemetry because I think this sounds like something that could let me you know bring analytics back into my apps. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to work with you on that. Like, I don't know how. Um, so I'm accepting. I'm accepting beta beta signups on their website now, and I have a few people who signed up and are trying out the thing. Yeah, and it is it is super interesting. I have no clue how much I can ask money wise for that thing because um, it turns out Swift on the server is incredibly performant. Um, so my I I. I I'm hosting this on DigitalOcean. This is not a shout out or anything, but they have like these very, very tiny machines for five euros or dollars, I think, US dollars a month. Yeah. And so I, I, I got myself one of those machines. The whole thing is running for five US dollars a month and I'm, I'm just waiting for this thing to fill up. But um, I have over 30,000 signals on the in, in the database right now. Yeah. And they're coming in faster and faster now that a few people are using the thing. And... Um, the the server isn't even sweating. So the idea is to just wait until this very tiny server fills up and then I'll have an idea of what my, my hosting costs are. Yeah. And then I hope I hope I can offer the the full product as cheap as possible. That's really cool. Is is there potentially something there where you're you might be thinking about limiting um the volume of data that somebody could send back? Um, to sort of keep keep the data sizes as small as possible. I haven't thought about the the sizes to be honest. Like, um, I I guess I'll cross that bridge when I when I encounter it. Um, because right now these signals can you can just attach a, a a dictionary of string to string, and they that will be the metadata for the signal. So if someone would attach like a one megabyte dictionary to that thing, then um, then yeah, that might become a problem, but I can't really imagine that that's a, a, a use case that's happening very often. Yeah. So for, sure. I'm, for this case, I'm just going to play it by ear. Tell me more about Swift on the server. Uh, what oh, yes, like? gladly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so as you know, Swift now runs on Linux and Windows and whatever. And um, various companies try to to create frameworks to to run Swift code on the server. And of course you can just, on, on a Linux machine, you can just right now just write a Swift file and then compile it with the Swift compiler. So that's the bare minimum. But what you can also do is that you can, you can use these frameworks that uh, will already give you functions to deal with incoming HTTP requests, incoming WebSocket requests. Um, lots of these uh, frameworks have ORMs object relationship mappers where you can just create a swift class and then translate that into database um, columns brilliant um error handling that kind of stuff right uh, user user authentication um and there's 
there, there used to be two of two main uh, frameworks for, the, for that, uh, Vapor and Kitura. And Kitura was developed by IBM, I believe. Yeah. Um, thing is, just when I started this project, like I had a prototype prototype running, but that was written in Python because I was just I, I wanted to get it up as quickly as possible. Uh, and then when I was like, okay, now I actually want to write the real thing because I have gained enough knowledge about the domain that I actually want to use it in that I can try out some new thing. I was looking at the decision, should I use Kitura or Swift? And then just that very day, I read a tweet or a news story or something that says, IBM is discontinuing Kitura. Do not use Kitura anymore. So oh. I basically closed all the Kitura tabs and left the Vapor tabs open and just dove in. And the other thing was just that, that Vapor had just updated to their newest version 4.0. So everything was new and compatible with um, Swift 5.2 or 3 or whatever I was using at the time. I think it was 3 already. Yeah. And so that was very convenient timing. Um, so and that, that let you go all in on Vapor. Right. Right. They have, they have very good documentation. It is a bit thin in places because um, I assume they're just... Um, I actually haven't looked at their project structure very, very much, but they seem to me like they are mostly in a, an open source project by made by volunteers. Yeah, um, I should double check that though, and um, it shows in the way that the documentation is incredibly good, but in some cases it's just like one or two sentences about a specific topic, where I'm like, okay, but what if I want to know more? Luckily, yeah. they do have a um, Discord server. And the people there are incredibly friendly. Um, so I remember when I first had a problem, I logged onto that Discord and I was like, okay, uh, how do I do this and that? And at first, because um, I think it was at a time where most of the actual developers of Vapor were um, were still sleeping because it must have been like a time zones kind of thing. Um, it was kind of had kind of this a uh, the blind leading the blind vibe because we were just <laughs> like a few users trying to figure this out. But after um, I don't know half an hour maybe, um, a solution kind of clarified itself, and I tried it out. It worked, and in the meantime, I even learned why it worked. Um, so that's very cool. I know a lot of um, the the concepts already from. Um, Python frameworks like Django that I use a lot yep. or even like Ruby frameworks frameworks like Rails and Vapor is not as um, as old so it has like a few rough edges still but it is remarkably remarkably well done for that um, it has a lot of the same things so if you are familiar with Rails or Django you'll find a lot of um, a lot of concepts that are represent, represented very similarly. For example, the concept of routing, which is, yep. if you're not a web developer, um, a request from a client application or a browser comes in and it says, hey, give me the address HTTP S <laughs> colon slash slash www dot whatever, whatever. And then slash and then a path at the end. So that might be slash docs slash slash quickstart.html or it might be slash API slash give me everything in the yeah. database. 
And routing is basically translating this path at the end into a function that's, that will be called in the code. So you usually would define like one function for each endpoint and then give it a path. And that's one of those concepts where it's like super similar to uh, existing frameworks that I know and love. And it, I might even say it's like a tiny bit better because it allows for variables in the path description directly, which is something that Django only very recently added and I've been missing for the last five years or so. Wow. So it's got that kind of environment where it's it's got a lot of these concepts, but because it's so new, it, right. it kind of sounds like it's able to, to be quite flexible, that a lot of this stuff is sort of still you know being figured out right. and brought brought together right. which is uh, exactly and that's a bit of a problem if you come into this as a as a newcomer because for example i was going to define my various database um tables and you define them by by just creating a class and then creating what's called a migration um that defines the table and its uh, columns and the the various docs that i found kind of disagreed with each other about how to do that like the basic the basic um, method was was the same but they had very different styles of doing that and uh, for example there were there's like at least two different ways of creating a foreign key and at the beginning i was basically layering both of those methods on top of each other which was um at the, in, in retrospect it was conf it, confusing and it did work but um I, I just had to try out a few things. Um, but it was very much fun. Uh, the The most frustrating thing for me was, I think, um, it turns out uh, both Vapor and Keturah are very much um, futures-based, I think. They use like these futures and promises that are provided by the Swift Neo library, N-I-O, that is, I think, think directly by apple and gives you even though it's not baked into swift yet gives you like this um concept of asynchronicity where you can, uh, your function can just return a future or a promise and then a a a, a code block will fill that promise uh, at a later stage and if you've worked with combine is it combine or combine i, if you I would with say combine, combine but <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. It's not the, the evil aliens from Half-Life. Um, if you work with Combine, um, that's very similar to that. Or if you ever worked with um, React, uh, Reactive Swift or React yep. Native or stuff like that. And I actually, I have worked um, with React Native before. Um, but for me, it was very hard getting into the, like getting into the um, flow of, just querying the database and then not doing anything with the the return value directly, but attaching another block that would work with the return value and then at, attaching another block that would work with that block's return value because that's how you chain these these blocks of code to each other so that it's all asynchronous. Yeah. And the problem with that is in in other languages, uh, you I didn't really ever have a problem with that but in swift it turns out it is very hard um to do the right thing here because um 
you know you know how like when you're writing normal procedural swift code you kind of can you kind of get guided by the compiler right like you you make a mistake but the compiler says the mistake is here and yep. the problem is that you use it using a string instead of an int so it's like okay so i'm using an int and i'm fixed it and this is super helpful but somehow it very much breaks down when you're working with them with all these callbacks um where the types are always inferred it's it's almost impossible to 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 hard type your types and um it you you get these error messages that said like okay i am expecting a event loop of oh, event loop future of of event loop future of this type but instead i'm getting an event loop future of event loop promise of this type or whatever and you kind of i i felt kind of lost yeah. i felt like okay what do i do now and um sometimes the the compiler just can't figure out what's going on anymore because it's just like too many um too many blocks like just chained to each other yeah. and you get an error message that is very much not where the actual problem is because it's just too hard to debug. So then, then it's basically just trial and error, finding out what am I supposed to do, which is which gets easier and easier after a while. But at the beginning, that was a steep learning curve. It sounds very much like um, Swift UI. Uh, oh yes, year. definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. And even still, this year, I mean, <laughs> I just like yesterday, I tweeted about. Uh, the compiler being unable to figure out this expression in a reason, reasonable time, which is the most infuriating error message I ever got. <laughs> um, have you ever had any experience using um, using SwiftUI yet? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've developed um, I've developed half of my app Go VJ in SwiftUI again now, so that's a oh, that's amazing. A halfway sort of rebuild. Um, but uh, I don't have anything that's released yet. I've, I've got that, and I've got uh, another app that is almost there, but it's been almost there for the last couple of months, so it's not really there yet. <laughs> I know those apps. Yeah. So the answer is yes, and I, I've actually done some Swift UI development um, in my, my day job as well for a couple of mm-hmm. projects. Um, but again, they were experimental things, so right. nothing in the app store yet. How are you finding the development though? Like, ha- has it been has it gotten better from one to two? Because I never really tried Swift UI one. Like I did, like dip my toe in for um, what amounts to a day or so, but only this WWDC I decided, okay, this looks uh, stable enough to actually do something. And the, the uh, telemetry frontend app is actually written in Swift UI. Right. So, so you did that. In about a day, did you say you sort of spent spent quite like a short for Swift amount of time UI one? I spent a very short amount of time on it because yeah. I figured that many people said yeah, you should probably wait a little bit more until you use this in yeah. a serious manner. Were they wrong? Were they wrong? Um, no, they weren't wrong. In my in my estimation, I think that the first year of Swift UI. It was very much still feeling quite quite beta, um, and the code completion mm-hmm. just broke all the time for me. Right. Um, so actually, I found that really quite frustrating. And, and it sounds like what you were saying with the um, the server side developments as well, um, in that you sort of get to a point where y- you're kind of aware of where it might break. 
so you kind mm. of write preemptively you know you sort of think well um you, you just get into the flow a little bit uh right but, but but the first stages of finding that flow i found were was sort of super trial and error you know i get i get this error message it didn't like something and right. the bit it's pointing to is clearly not the bit that's broken you know it's actually several lines further up and it's to do with something completely different but it's telling me off for this bit further down um so i found that really really frustrating in the first year of swift ui and then what we've had sort of since um since june is um with with this next version of it um it solved a lot of the the edges and the problems that i had and the code completion's gotten a bit better um so i'm finding it a lot more workable right but uh yeah, I, I don't know. It's this sort of fifty-fifty thing where, depending on who you talk to, um, it sort of seems to find <laughs> yeah. that you, you know, some people have made absolutely, um, you know, performant and brilliant apps in Swift UI. But I suspect sometimes it's because those apps are perhaps quite simple, or they've not gone too deep down, you know, all the things that an app can do. Um, that might that might very well be, yeah. Uh... Yeah, um, so I've I've certainly found that I've had to work around it a bit, um, e- e- even just with the bits that I've been doing that that are not released yet. Um, I- I've ended up with uh, some UI kit stuff that's just wrapped up, you know, which I don't, I don't mind mm. having to do. Um, but there's a little bit of me that always feels like that's kind of cheating somehow. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have um. you? Um... How do you find the documentation? Because um, I think I think that might be like one of the two main gripes people have with SwiftUI that uh, that they find hard to formulate. Because if you are like an old time uh, or like old time iOS developer, I'd say, well, we are old, or I am old at least. <laughs> I'm old. Um, then. Um, then you're kind of used to very well documented APIs that are rock solid. The compiler very much guides you toward, towards where you want to go in Swift. And then in the new Swift UI, the documentation is kind of sparse. You have yeah. mostly video, which is not text, which is not as easily parsable. Yeah. And the compiler can't help you as much. So, and I, and I think it seems to me that many gripes that developers who are in, who have been in the Apple ecosystem for a longer time uh, kind of come from that because they 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 feel like there's there's a level of quality that they're expecting that's just not there and so no. they feel kind of disappointed I think that's fair I, I do think that's a fair um, view of it I've and then there's the other group that are kind of like new and hungry and fresh and they are not used to that level of quality yet and they also realize that Swift UI is kind of still in beta at yep. least the documentation always has like these beta tags plastered all over it, even though we all kind of know that it's probably going to be the thing you use to write to write Apple apps in the future, right? And so they kind of just organize themselves. They write blog posts and they just spend a lot of time, I guess, just working things out and then they make these beautiful apps. Yep. So I, what I've tended to find is that I sort of fall somewhere in the middle of all of that mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm quite happy to just go to like hacking with swift um you know and that's that's got quite a comprehensive swift ui section oh yes 
Very yeah. much shout out to that website. I actually sprung for a paid account now. And the awesome. paid articles are super incredibly good. Shout out to Paul Hudson, who is an amazing person. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, the only way I think Paul's work could be any better is if Apple just paid him and brought it all the way <laughs> into their stuff, you know? Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I think I'd have been lost, um, without that site. So yeah, it's definitely in its infancy, um, still, but there's part of me that's just super excited about Swift UI and, and, I don't really know what it is. I think there's a flow that I sort of feel like I get into um, when mm. when I'm when I'm not hitting those limits, and it starts to feel quite fluid. Uh, I don't know if you've you've kind of picked up on. Oh some yes, I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Like the minute the second you said those words, I was like, oh, yes, he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. And so that's the appeal, and I, I I don't know if you've sort of find this yourself, but. Uh, it makes me forgiving um, mm -hmm. because I've had that flow and then that's enough to kind of entice me. And then when I hit the, the edge, I'm like, Oh, okay. All right. I'll, I'll try and figure out how I, you know, wrap some, some UI kit stuff and just make this work. Or, you know, I, I kind of just deal with it. Um, right. Whereas I think if I, if all I was meeting were, were the edges, I'd just be super pissed off and, and, and that would be right it you know so so right. the flow keeps me going yeah i, I feel that um i i kind of do the same when i work on the telemetry app um and this is an app that i'm writing in parallel for ios and mac os because with as you know with swift ui you can like share most of the code and it turns out that even a lot of the views that are not too complicated can be the same like especially if it's like they're like tiny components yeah um the problem is that macOS support for SwiftUI is still a lot of uh, still a far way behind uh, iOS support, or at least it seems that that way to me. Like it seems to me that macOS support is kind of on beta one, whereas iOS support is kind of on beta two. If you know what I mean. Are you are you using the Catalyst form of SwiftUI? No, UI? no, I okay. use um, uh, Big Sur. Yeah. So it's an and then, then, and then, just pure Swift UI. So I have like a, a macOS target in this app, yeah. and it is buggy still. Um, I think under the under the hood, probably probably the Apple engineers are having to duplicate a lot of their work because I assume that while iOS Swift UI code will generate UI Kit components under under the hood. I assume that, um, and from some error messages, you kind of see it all happening too, that um, SwiftUI code on Mac will generate AppKit components, right? That's right, and yeah. So um, a lot of that stuff doesn't work perfectly yet. So you run into these edge cases way more frequent than on iOS. Like for example, the app uses a sidebar and a toolbar. And those are kind of the two new cool updated features for um for big sur but also for ios a little bit because yeah. there's these cool new sidebars that are shared and everything and I, I really wanted to use wanted to use one of those and on mac os it's it's been very tough to get that sidebar um working properly because whenever i update it programmatically it will just like get hiccups and display <laughs> stuff that i didn't intend it to whereas on iOS, so my 
strategy is kind of when I get too frustrated with the macOS part, I just switch target to iOS and then <laughs> work on that. And then sometimes it works on the the code that I come up with also works on macOS and that's cool. And then if not, I get I, I just have to duplicate the class and just add them to different targets. I'm wondering how you would find that uh, if it was a Catalyst app. Um, that's a good um, question. Because that's uh, I, I found some similar things when I was making this um, this demonstration mm-hmm. app at work, uh, which was it was pretty simple. All it needed to do was um, it had had a bunch of fields, and data was loaded in from a, a JSON file, and then you could manipulate right. the the data in the fields, and then you could just hit a button and export. And right. I found that that developing that it was easier to just let it be a Catalyst app. Mm-hmm. Even though th- that that comes with some of its own um, some of its own problems, uh, for example, the the field taking the focus of the um, of the cursor, uh, there was right. a bunch of stuff around that that just didn't quite work as it needed to. <laughs> <laughs> which, um, but uh, yeah, I found a workaround for that, and um, which seems to be my, my Swift UI story. Really, oh, I found a workaround for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, no, what I found was that um, it felt just a little bit more straightforwards, and there was a bunch of other stuff as well. Like uh, I needed to um, to present like a, a document uh, view, so so you could select where you wanted mm-hmm. to to export the data to. Um, and actually, I, th- I can't remember the uh, the UI kit um, name of the component that it is for that. Um, it's like the document picker, I think, with um, some configuration. But mm-hmm. um, that worked really, really easy, even with me having to sort of wrap things up and bounce things through to uh, to the app delegate and kind of run some stuff from there. Um, that worked really, really easy. And having that that sort of catalyst side of things was great. As an iOS developer, it was great. Uh, right. The bonus being there is that the iPad app got exactly the same behavior and runs just as well yeah. as the mac app um so, so that was part of the appeal yeah i can totally see that i did like i didn't really play around with catalyst a lot um because to me it's not that attractive because um the apps that i have don't really work on mac like the existing ones for example Libby, i did compile that where you're using catalyst yeah. and I'm using a lot of um, custom components. Like, for example, I have these very fat sliders to enter, um, for example, your mood for the day. And um, they really, like, they they work technically on macOS, but they look very out of place. And then the other thing is that um, Libby is using um, HealthKit a lot. And that just isn't there on macOS, I think, or at least on macOS 10. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like I, I tried it out a few times and then I was like, okay, this is super interesting, but it's not for me. And then for telemetry, I very much wanted to try out SwiftUI on the Mac directly. So this is more like a preference choice, especially since in theory, next month we'll all have ARM-based Macs and can just <laughs> run the iPad app directly on the Mac if that's what we want. Yep. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to those. I really am. Oh, me too. Like the thing is, I am leasing my computer these days 
um, which is a model that works for me very well. So as soon as the, the new ones are announced, I'm going to just be refreshing the website of the company that leases me the computer um, <laughs> until they have the new model. And I hope it's a, it's a, they have, they'll have one that's like pretty powerful uh, very soon because then, of course, I'm going to send this one back and just get the ARM equivalent. Brilliant. At least I hope, I hope to be able to do that. And that's, that's going to be very fun. So, Daniel, tell me, where do you think telemetry is going next? You know, what are the next stages for the project? Oh, that's an amazing question. Okay, so um, right now I'm in the stage where I'm still finding how the user interface for the, the companion app should be. Like, I'm trying out different layouts. Um, I have all these graphs and they need to they need to get some improvements because, for example, I haven't bothered to to label my x and y axes yet so they're completely useless for now they're just trend <laughs> lines and so uh, there's a few features that i want to get into the app and i want to get a few more small or medium-sized uh, developers into the into the beta program uh so that I can just, just just try everything out, and because I'm getting also already a lot of feedback um, of how people are using the app and what they are expecting, like for example, right now um, the app works in a way that your your app will um, give a random user identifier and send that along with every signal, so that. Um, so that, that so that I can distinguish users between signals, even though I cannot um, know anything about the user except that they all these signals belong to them. And now people have, have asked me, can you actually um, can you actually like remove the dependence on that on that user identifier, or can we do something about that? And that is technically already possible. So I guess that's just a I should just like update the API slightly so that use case is possible, and then write a a document about that because like that's the other thing I'm I'm spending a lot of time uh, with just like writing documentation so that people f- will find it easier to use the thing. Yeah, and. Um, just there's various use cases where people are like, okay, but I want to do this. Can privacy still be guaranteed? And um, so I can write a document that says like, yes, you can do this. You can, for example, not use user identifiers at all and still get all the statistical analysis. Um, you just don't really know. You can just, The only thing you can't really do is like count the amount of your users, right? Yep. But... Um, Everything else is is completely possible. Like I used to work at um, this company called Clicks C L I Q Z, and they um, were a mostly a European search engine company, and they were super focused on privacy. Right? They wanted to be like the private alternative to Google, and they kind of folded sadly. Um, but they had, among other things, they had a browser and they had analytics as well. And I spent a lot of time with their analytics team just talking about um, how to make things private in a way that you still get useful data out of it. And that is uh, incredibly, um, incredibly helpful. And uh, so my, my day job with them was actually writing the iOS version of their browser. 
and that was actually super fun we um we had a lot of fun from writing with that and that had uh, various ad blockers that would also uh privatize privatize user information in a way that would um keep useful information but not identifying information there's like various algorithms yep. and techniques you can use for that and Actually, most of these techniques are going to make their way into telemetry as well. Oh, that's awesome. Um, luckily, they haven't copyrighted these. And so I can I can just use them and be like, yes, this is what the clicks white paper is talking about. And this is also in telemetry. If you don't know clicks, by the way, they're, um, the, the, the product lives on in the form of Ghostory browser. So if you're using the Ghostory browser for iOS, you're using code that I wrote. Um, so yes, the one thing is more privacy. The other thing is um, uh, I I just want to make the user interface very nice and slick and very easy to use. Like um, if I am writing or defining an insight, which is basically a fancy database qu- query, then I want it to be able to, to I want you to be able to use drag and drop and um, clicking as much as possible and. Uh, one thing that you shouldn't have to do um, is go back and forth between the app and your code and look up various, like, I don't know, metadata keys or stuff like that. That should all be in there just at your fingertips so you can just very easily create new insights or modify existing ones. And awesome. I think there's some user interface work in there. And then the next steps is just, like, grow the user base. And uh, until I know basically like what are my costs and then probably grandfather in most if not all of the existing beta users because they're super helpful right and then and then go go live it's going to be a soft launch i guess let's see how that goes it's it's going to be a few more months until i'm at that point though that's that's brilliant it's uh right it's absolutely a product that I'm looking forward to to having a play with, and um, awesome. I'm pretty sure it'll appeal to uh, to quite a few of the listeners of the show as well. So, whereabouts can they find you, Daniel? Where where can people find you online to uh, to get right. in touch and get on the beta? Right to get on the beta, you go to apptelemetry.io. So and that's app a p p and then telemetry. T-E-L-E-M-E-T-R-Y, I think, and then .io. Yep. And there you can just like enter your email address. Me personally, you could find on Twitter at uh, BreakTheSystem. That's my private Twitter account. Um, feel free to follow me there and hit me up about, about telemetry, about cats, I guess, and about <laughs> space. <laughs> so um, telemetry, cats, and space. That pretty much is it, yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, love to see you there. Thanks for listening to the show. Since Waiting for Review started, we've had a small community of iOS developers over on Slack. If you'd like to join us over there, then just drop me a line at David Gary Wood on Twitter. Drop me a DM or, or a message there, and I can shoot you over an invite to join us all. Thanks a lot. Catch you again in a couple of weeks.